remain standing, take out a copy of God's word. As Pastor Logan comes, we'll read God's word together. Take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. We'll read verses 41 through 51. Hear now the Word of the Lord. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that everyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now as we turn into your word to behold wondrous things. We thank you for who you are. You are the God of the universe. You are the sovereign one. There is none like you. Hallowed be your name. God, we ask that your name would be hallowed here today as we look into this passage and we think much about what Christ is telling us, what Christ is telling these Jews about how you operate in the hearts of those who believe. God, we thank you. We thank you for grace. We thank you for your mercy. And we ask, God, that as we, as we see that afresh today, that you would humble our hearts before you and that you would help us to worship you rightly for what you have done. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, we have entered into that month in which we are all bombarded with a constant celebration of sin. It seems like every year the culture wars just get more and more intense. And the flagrant rebellion every year seems to get more and more intense. There is a great irony, though, in the name that they have chosen to celebrate their sin. Pride Month. Because if there's anything that the Bible speaks about very clearly, it is God's resistance to and hatred for pride. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. You see, God will not be mocked. And there is coming a day when he will deal with all of this. As James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. But just as it is pride that characterizes the unbelieving heart, the primary characteristic of the heart of the believer ought to be the very opposite. It ought to be humility. Humility is the very example of Christ that Paul says that we are to strive after in Philippians chapter 2. We are not to be a people given to pride. But if we are honest, when we watch what is going on in our world today, when we watch the flagrant sin that is being imposed upon us, there is a temptation for us to spiritual pride. Much like the Pharisee who said, I thank you, God, that I am not like other men. Church, that should not be our response. And the truth is, when you understand salvation rightly, 
when you truly grasp the grace of God and what has taken place in your life, if you're an actual believer, if you belong to Him, then that can't be your response. Because those who, those who truly see it, those who truly understand grace, are absolutely humbled by what they have received, as we will see very clearly today. Today we're jumping back into this bread of life discourse in which Jesus is confronting this crowd with the truth of who He is and the truth of who they are. And much like what we saw last week in verses 37 through 40, today Jesus is going to continue to press on the sovereignty of God in salvation to these Jews who are just persisting in their unbelief. In fact, the verses that we are looking at today, especially verse 44, are, are without question some of the most controversial verses in all of Scripture when it comes to understanding how God acts in salvation. But despite their controversy, they are also some of the most beautiful in understanding the truth of grace. And because of that, we're going to continue to press on these truths of God's sovereignty and salvation. So we're just going to work through verse 47 today and really take our time to explore what Jesus means in these verses. As we look at this today, we're going to see two redemptive truths that ought to cause great humility in the heart of those who truly understand them. We're going to look at the, the character of unbelief and the source of true belief, both of which should fuel humility in our hearts. Now, to be honest, often those who hold to a so-called Calvinistic understanding of salvation do get accused of being prideful, because surely it's prideful to think you're one of the chosen ones, right? Not if you understand it rightly. Now, now, to be sure, there are some who, who claim to hold to these truths that we are looking at who are, in fact, arrogant about them and arrogant about their status before God as a result. But their arrogance is only a display, display that they truly do not understand what they claim to believe. Because you cannot believe this and not be humbled by it. Not truly. So for them, it has not sunk down to the heart. It has not registered. You can't rightly understand the doctrines of grace and have a prideful reaction. In fact, I will go so far as to say that a Calvinistic understanding of salvation is the only understanding that removes all of the grounds for boasting and pride in oneself. Every other view leaves man room for pride as we will see today. So we need to understand this rightly. There's a reason Jesus is pressing this, and we need to dive into His words. We're not just going to pass over them and pretend like He didn't say that. Not at all. So let's look at this, but let's start with the, the character of unbelief. Look at verses 41 and 42. It says, So the Jews grumbled about Him, because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Now, right off the bat, you'll notice that a shift here has taken place in this discourse on the part of John. Up to this point, all through chapter 6, John, the writer, has been referring to these people, the Galileans, as either the crowd or the people, and typically the crowd. It started all the way back in verse 2. He said a large crowd was following Jesus. And in verse 5, a large crowd was coming toward him. In verse 10, he calls them the people. In verse 14, the people. And then in, in verse 22 and 24, John again calls them the crowd. But then you get here to verse 41, and John now says, So the Jews grumbled about him. The question is, why the shift? Why the change? Well, some have put forth the idea that there has actually been an audience change here. 
that the historical situation has now shifted and, and Jesus is actually addressing Jewish leadership. Well, while it is true that often when John says the Jews throughout the Gospel of John, he's typically referring to Jewish leadership, he also sometimes just uses that term negatively to speak of those Jews who were hostile and antagonistic to Christ. And in, in this context, there's actually no reason at all, no other indication at all here contextually to think that the audience has shifted. In fact, verse 42 makes it virtually certain that this is the same group of Galileans because they say, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? See, Jewish leadership couldn't say that, but the Galileans could. Why? Because Jesus was a Galilean. In fact, he had moved from Nazareth of Galilee to Capernaum of Galilee where this discourse is taking place. Capernaum was his hometown at this point. So these people knew him. So then why the shift? Why does John then call them the Jews instead of the, the crowd? Well, I think the answer is actually quite clear. Uh, when you look at how John typically uses this designation in the negative sense, and you look at as what is going on in this discourse, this crowd is growing more and more hostile to what Jesus is saying as this thing moves on. The intensity of this situation is rising. This was actually just a rhetorical move on the part of John to place these Galileans in the same boat of hostility as are the Jews in Jerusalem. The unbelieving antagonism here was just as real as the antagonism that he will face in Jerusalem that will eventually lead to his death. But the question is, what is causing the shift in this crowd? Because remember, at, at the beginning of this, they could not be more excited about Jesus. Less than 24 hours prior to this, they're ready to make Him their King. And now they're growing hostile to Him? How did this, how did this shift so quickly? What, what happened? What's causing this sudden shift in the crowd? Well, the answer is embedded in their words. They make it very clear. John makes it very clear. He says, The Jews grumbled about him. Why? Because he said, I am the bread of life who've come down from heaven. They are offended at Christ. They are offended at his person. They are offended at his claims. With each interchange between Jesus and the crowd, he's getting more and more clear about who he is, and they don't like it. In fact, he started, he started speaking in the third person back in verse 27. He referring to himself as the Son of Man. And then he claimed in verse 29 that the central requirement of God upon all people was that they believe in the one whom God has sent. Again, referring to himself, implying that he is sent from God. And then in verse 33, he said that the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then in verse 35, when their unbelief continued to persist, they still thought he was talking about physical bread and even made a demand for it. Then Jesus gets really explicit and he says, I am the bread of life. And then verse 38, Jesus just keep, keeps pushing it and he says, I have come down from heaven. And then verse 40, he says, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. You see, at this point, the point could not be missed. Jesus has made it absolutely clear who He is claiming to be. The Son of God, sent from heaven, who has the power to give eternal life. And that is why the antagonism is growing so quickly. You see, the heart of unbelief is always offended at the true identity of Jesus Christ. They might not be offended at a false Christ, but they are always offended at the true identity of Jesus Christ. And here these people are utterly rejecting His claims. 
They explicitly say, we know his mother and father. How can he claim to have come down from heaven? Who does this guy think he is? You see, they they merely believe that Jesus is the son of Joseph, come from Nazareth. But the whole point of John's gospel is to show the reader that he is more than that, that he is the Christ, the Word, the Son of God, come down from heaven. But these Jews could not and did not believe that claim. The claim Jesus at this point had made clear, both in word and in deed, through his, his creative power that he displayed at the beginning of this chapter. Despite everything they had witnessed, despite all of their excitement about him that still existed just minutes prior to this, they are now grumbling about him in unbelief. Now, this, this, this word grumble, it means to speak in, in low tones, disparagingly, disapprovingly. They're now just talking to one another, disapprovingly, grumbling about Christ. They're not even giving him the respect to address him. And John, John uses this language of, of grumbling on purpose. You need to remember who John's original audience is to understand this. John was, was writing primarily to diaspora Jews, that is, Jews who were spread out because of the war that had taken place. And he is trying to reach them with the truth of who Christ is. But this language of grumbling would be very familiar to a Jewish reader, because it would signal to them of another group of Jews who grumbled at God. In the same way that many of you who know your Old Testaments know exactly what I am referencing, so would John's readers. You see, this is not the first time in history that the Jews, the children of Israel, are said to have grumbled. In fact, the word grumbled is a repeated refrain all throughout the first Exodus generation. Listen to this passage from Exodus 16 that addresses this. And and to give a little context before I read this, know that this is after the crossing of the Red Sea. Up to this point, the children of Israel had already seen God execute ten different plagues on the nation of Egypt. They had been through the Passover. They watched the Lord split the Red Sea. They crossed on dry ground, and they watched Him destroy the entire Egyptian army as He brought the waters back together when they attempted to follow the Hebrews. They had seen God do marvelous things up until this point. But after crossing and and coming into the, the wilderness, they had already grumbled against Moses once because of the need for water. But even there, God miraculously and graciously supplied their need, despite their grumbling. So all of that is the context. That's what's happening up to Exodus 16. Now they're in the wilderness of sin, and they're on their way to Sinai, and it says this. It says, The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. After everything they had seen, everything they had gone through, that was their conclusion. That God did all of that so they could come out into the wilderness and die of hunger. That unbelieving generation did not trust nor believe God for their provisions at all. Despite the fact that God had already provided for them repeatedly. Yet in response to this, God graciously comes to Moses and Aaron and promises to rain down manna from heaven and to supply meat for this people. And in so doing, he was going to test this generation to see if they would obey him. So Moses and Aaron go back to the people to report this, and it says this in verse 6. It says, So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling 
against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it is against the Lord. You see, the unbelieving generation of Israel, if they were characterized by anything, it was by their grumbling. Repeatedly, throughout their wilderness experience, they grumble against God. But here, this generation of Jews, thousands of years later, proved themselves to truly be the descendants of that unbelieving, grumbling generation. Rightly did they claim their heritage back in verse 31 when they said to Christ, Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Yeah, that's right. And the lineage of unbelief is on full display. They have followed suit. And their unbelief here is centered on the person of Christ, who is the true provision of God. In like manner to their forefathers, they have already seen God at work in Christ. They have already seen wondrous things and even have partaken in His miraculous provisions for them at the feeding of the 5,000. They had no rational reason not to believe He is who He says He is. He's already demonstrated that. But just like their ancestors, they stubbornly continue in their unbelief. And honestly, that just illustrates a massive truth about unbelief itself. Unbelief is not rational. It, it, it never has been. Unbelief at its core is absolutely irrational. And you see it clearly in our day with, with things like the atheist movement. Yes, the, the new atheists try to present themselves as the modern intelligent thinkers of the day. But yet they are forced to hold to the irrational belief that everything in creation was formed by random chance. The, the, the beauty of the flower, or the complexity of the ecosystem, or the perfect distance of the sun to the earth that creates the very environment in which life could exist, that all just happens by chance? And where did life even come from? Life sprang from non-life? Are you kidding me? That is an irrational belief. But that's why the Bible says in Psalm 14:1, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is irrational to maintain unbelief. Unbelief does not stand up to reason. It never has and it never will. It is foolishness. But don't kid yourself. It's not an intellectual problem. It's not at all. It's never an intellectual problem, ever. Unbelief is always a moral problem. It is a stubborn resistance to the one true God. That was the case for the children of Israel in the Exodus, and that is the case here for this crowd. These are not stupid people. These are sinful people, like all people, whose hearts are resistant to the truth that is plainly before them. And this just goes to show what we have seen again and again throughout the Scripture, that every, every human heart needs a supernatural agent to act upon it in order to overcome its, un, its own unbelief. Yours was the same way. But that's exactly what Jesus is about to show them. Look at, what he, look at what he says. Look how Jesus responds to this grumbling as he now shows them the, the source of true belief. Look at verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. See, Jesus confronts their, their grumbling directly. And he uses the same word, grumbling. Placing them, just as John does, in the succession of their grumbling forefathers. And, and notice, they were grumbling among themselves. They weren't even grumbling to him. 
But just like in the Exodus, when God heard their grumblings and responds, here God incarnate has heard their grumblings, and He responds. And He responds by explaining their own unbelief. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. Now this verse is really one of the key texts of debate when it comes to understanding the truth of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Because if we take Jesus to mean what he plainly means here, then it is obvious that it is the Father who is the decisive agent in salvation, not the will of man. The will of man is unable, apart from the aid of the Father, to come to Christ. That is just plainly what he says. However, the, the Arminians do have an argument here that needs to be addressed. And the way in which those who are committed to upholding the free will of man or an Arminian scheme of salvation try to get around what I, I believe is just obvious here is to say, yes, no one can come apart from the Father's drawing them, but through Christ, God draws everyone. Every person who has ever lived has now received some kind of prevenient grace or enablement by which they may choose either to come to Christ or not, and therefore the free will of man is still the decisive agent. And a proof text that they will use for this is John chapter 12, verse 32, where Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, when you hear that out of context, you might think, well, maybe they have a point. And that's what Jesus says. But this is why you must deal with verses in their context. Ripping verses out of context and deriving meaning from them apart from what's going on is a very dangerous thing to do. Context drives meaning. Because John chapter 12, which Lord willing we will get there and deal with it thoroughly when we do get there, probably next year or something. (laughs) But for now, we do need to know what John chapter 12 is about. John 12 is about the global intent of the death of Christ. And it is actually right before he is crucified, chronologically speaking. It's after the triumphal entry. And right before Jesus made this key statement, some Gentiles are found to be seeking Jesus. Some Greeks come to the disciples and they say to Philip, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus responds to his disciples when they tell him there's some, some men who want to see you, saying, if anyone follows me, the Father will honor them. Which is a radical thing to speak of the Christ for the Gentiles. But simultaneously, while this is going on, in the fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah, Jewish unbelief reaches its climax. And that's brought out very explicitly when it's talking about God having hardened their hearts. And then following that, in the face of this Jewish unbelief, Jesus makes several statements about how he came for the world. Not merely the nation of Israel, but for the world. He is the light of the world. He came to save the world. See, what John is doing in chapter 12, just before Jesus' death, is to show that he is a savior for all nations, for all peoples. His death has global ramifications. So when Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself when I am lifted up, that is all people without distinction, not just the nation of Israel, but all nations, whether Jew or Gentile. does not mean at all that all people without exception, every single person who has ever lived, that's not the point of that entire chapter. No, He's not just a Messiah for the Jews alone. He is a Messiah for the nations. That's clearly what's going on in John chapter 12. So you can't take what Jesus says there and slap it on here in a different context and try to make them equivalent. Speaking about two different things. Context matters. And the context here matters. Because when we look at the context here, it's clear that Jesus' point is that the Father 
is in fact the decisive agent in salvation. The very reason why Jesus says this to this group is to show them that the reason why they will not come, the reason why they are not believing in Him is because the Father has not drawn Him. They are not of His people. This is a rebuke. He is saying your unbelief, your grumbling shows that you are not of God. You are not of God because the Father has not drawn you. You think you're God's children, but you're not. And you can't come to me without him. Jesus actually speaks in this way multiple times. We'll see him do this again. We'll see this in John 8 when he tells the Jews, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. It's not that they couldn't physically hear what Jesus was saying. It's that they spiritually could not believe what was being said to them because they were not God's people. He locates their spiritual deafness and the unbelief of those people in the fact that they were not of God. They are not already God's people chosen by God's grace. God is not drawing them. Or another place we see this very clearly is John chapter 10, where again Jesus is responding to Jewish leadership after they ask him, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. And Jesus says this in verse 25, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Think about that. He didn't say, you're not among my sheep because you don't believe. He said, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. It was a rebuke. He is correcting who they think they are. See, Jesus is not ashamed of this truth. He's not ashamed of God's electing grace. He is very straightforward with it repeatedly. And he's doing the same thing here with this crowd. Stop your grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. In the same fashion, this is a rebuke. You're, you're not coming to me because God hasn't drawn you. You think you're God's people, but you are not. You are not of the Father, and the evidence of that is you're not coming to me. You see, the situational context absolutely testifies what Jesus is plainly saying, that the Father is the decisive agent in salvation. But it's not only a situational context. It's also the grammatical context. Because if you just follow the simple flow of thought, it absolutely cannot mean what the Arminian says that it means. Look again at what he says in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, the question that must be asked in the second half of this verse is who is the him? that Jesus will raise up on the last day. Who is that a reference to? It's the same hymn from the first half of the verse, the hymn who the Father draws. Grammatically, that is inescapable. The same person that the Father draws is the same person that Christ says He will raise up. Because the one who the Father draws always comes to Christ, and the one who comes to Christ will be raised up on the last day infallibly that will happen therefore the father's drawing leads to being raised up so if you're going to say that this is some kind of universal drawing for everybody then you would have to say grammatically speaking that everybody will be raised up on the last day you would have to be universalist to be consistent in this verse there is no hell everybody is saved which is heresy and that is not at all what Jesus is saying. No, there is, there is absolutely no escaping it here. Christ is making it clear that the Father is the decisive agent in salvation alone. Those whom He draws infallibly come to Christ. And those who He does not draw cannot come to Christ. Why? 
Because as we have seen over and over and over, the scriptures declare that all men are totally depraved. They're born spiritually dead, slaves to sin, and haters of God. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for, good, for God, no one does good, not even one. And it is because of our depravity as humanity that God must do a work in the human heart if anyone's going to be saved. Otherwise, apart from His work, no one would come and no one could come. But God has grace. And He bestows that upon whomever He will. The question we need to ask, though, is how does this work? What is God doing in this drawing process? Is He just dragging people, kicking and screaming against their wills to come to Him? How, how does this work? Well, Jesus actually explains that. That's what verses 45 and 46 are all about. They are a further explanation of verse 44, the drawing of God. Look at what He says. He says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. See, as Jesus just explains more, the, the Arminian argument gets more and more impossible. Jesus now appeals to Scripture. Showing forth, demonstrating that what he is saying is, is nothing new. This is what the Scripture has always taught. This is a reference, as was read for us this morning, that comes from Isaiah 54, 13. The obvious thing to state about Isaiah 54 is that it comes after Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, if you remember, is the great prophecy of the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, who bore the iniquities of his people and was crushed by the will of the Lord. And on the heels of that, Isaiah 54 speaks of the eternal covenant of peace that God will establish with his people as their Redeemer. It is there that he says that he will bestow an everlasting love upon his people out of his great compassion for them. And it is there that it is said that all of the children, all of his people, shall be taught by God himself. They shall be taught by the Lord, by Yahweh. Jesus is here taking that text, and he's saying that the truth of it is fulfilled in him. He interprets that passage to mean, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. That's what Isaiah 54 means. The evidence of those who are part of that community who has an everlasting covenant of peace, who receive the everlasting love of God, are those who come to Him. And those who come to Him are those who are taught directly by God. They are those who have heard and learned from the Father. You see, this is one of the biggest differences between the Old Covenant and the new covenant. And it's actually one of the reasons why we are Baptists. Like, how does that connect? I'll explain. Under the old covenant, you could be a part of the covenant community of God without truly knowing God. The old covenant was established with a particular nation, a particular people, the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Jacob, the children of Israel. And they were given circumcision as a sign of the old covenant. Being a descendant of Abraham and receiving the sign of circumcision showed forth that you were a part of the covenant community of God, the covenant people of God. And this was based upon lineage and the sign that was given in infancy. You could be a part, this means, of the old covenant community without truly knowing and serving God. As the Old Testament bears out, Israel's history is actually dominated by people who were a part of the covenant people but didn't know God at all. Just go read the book of Judges or the book of Kings and you will see that very clearly. 
But the new covenant is different. And God was explicit about its differences. Listen to what he said through the prophet Jeremiah about the new covenant. It's a beautiful passage. Listen to this. Jeremiah 31. God says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Praise God. You see, everyone in the new covenant shall know the Lord. This is why we don't baptize infants, babies, like our paedo-baptist brothers do. We practice believers' baptism because the new covenant is established with those who know God. Only those who know God can be a member of the church and a member of the covenant community. You cannot be a part of the new covenant and not know God. That would be a violation of, of God's own words. And God ensures that they will all know Him by taking care of it Himself. By writing His truth, His law, His Torah, His teaching, His instruction on their very hearts. They will all be taught by God. That is what's going on in the new covenant. Now Jesus makes it clear, He clarifies in verse 46, that being taught by the Father is, is, is not that anyone has seen the Father. The only one who has seen the Father is, is Him. And it is for that reason that He speaks authoritatively for the Father, because He is from the Father. So He's, he's not here talking about physical encounters with the Father. He is here talking about what takes place in the heart of the sinner when the Father, through the Spirit, draws one to Christ. And when God does that, He does it by granting spiritual eyes through the new birth so that one may see the truth of who Christ is, the glory of who Christ is, and come. This is why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of the water in the Spirit alluding to Ezekiel 36, where God said He takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that is tender and submissive to Him. That's, that's what's going on when the Father does His work in the heart of the sinner. And Jesus says they have heard and learned from the Father when that is happening. And the evidence that one has experienced this is that they come to Christ that they see His glory for the first time. They see who He truly is, and with new hearts, they do what they could not do with their old, sinful, corrupt hearts. They believe. They believe. They trust in Christ. How does this happen? When does this happen? It happens through the preaching of Christ. That's how God has ordained it. When the truth of Christ goes forth, it is either rejected or it is accepted. And the difference maker for those who believe and accept is not the will of man. It is the teaching of the Father. It is the drawing of the Father. Because the natural will of the sinner will always reject. But the drawing of the Father overcomes that will. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Praise God. If you believe in Christ, 
That is what has happened to you. The Father has done a work that you may believe, that you will believe. It is all a gift. And God has done this not by dragging the sinner against his will and his desires, but rather by transforming the will so that it has new desires. That is why he is faithful to say that if one believes the gospel, it is all of the grace of God. But if one rejects the gospel, it is all of the will of man. In other words, if you come to Christ, God gets the credit. But if you reject Christ, you get the blame. Because you reject him out of the volition of your own will and desires. Grace is God not leaving you in your own will and desires. This is why Jesus now reasserts what he's already said, that he is the object of belief. He is the primary object the Father teaches. Look at, look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. You see, it's all about Christ. What the Father teaches is Christ. Everything hangs on what one believes about Christ. We've seen already that the Son has come to reveal the Father, but the Father is the one who reveals the Son. And all of this revealing work is brought to fruition by the Spirit of God working in the heart of the sinner. One of the clearest and most beautiful illustrations that we see of this in Scripture is with Peter in his great confession in Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16 actually takes place chronologically not long after this whole event, after the feeding of the 5,000. It, it took place while Jesus has still been laboring in Galilee, among the Galileans. And it was at that time he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. See, their answer demonstrated the continuing unbelief of this people, of the Galilean people, what many in this crowd thought of Christ. But then Jesus says to his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter spoke up, as he does, and he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him, and he said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, Peter's great confession wasn't something that he came up on his own. Not at all. It was what the Father had done in his heart. Belief in Christ is the work of the Father. It is the teaching of the Father. The question we need to ask as we conclude is, why is this important? Why has God done it this way? And why does Christ explicitly teach on this several times? Why does he pull the curtain back, so to speak, and reveal what is going on behind the scenes? Why is it important that we know this? Well, there is a one-word answer to that. It's grace. It's grace. God has done it this way so that grace would truly be grace. And Christ ensured that all would know, that all would know what grace truly is, that this is all of grace. You see, if the Arminian scheme were to be true, that the, the decisive uh, agent of salvation is the will of man, then the difference between your spending an eternity in heaven and your unbelieving friends spending an eternity in hell is that you made a better decision. It's not grace. In fact, according to them, you both received the same grace. You both received enabling, prevenient grace. You both heard the same gospel. One rejected and one believed. Why? Because you made a wiser decision. You chose to believe. He chose to reject. You get heaven. They get hell. Ultimately, because you are wiser not because of grace. Grace is not the decisive agent. 
That is not at all the truth. And Jesus is making that very clear. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. This is actually precisely why God has done it the way He's done it. So that grace would be truly grace and that no one would have any ground for boasting. There will be no boasting before God. No one will stand before Him because they are wiser or they made a better decision than somebody else. They will only stand before Him because of grace, because of what He has done. He gets all the glory for what He has done in the hearts of sinners. You see, understanding this rightly ought to cause one not to be arrogant towards another, towards an unbeliever, or even towards somebody else in your doctrine. It should have the opposite effect. They should cause deep humility toward God and toward others. Think about it, Christian. You deserve nothing of what you have. As Paul says, what do you have that God has not given you? And if everything you have is a gift, why do you boast as though it was not? Everything you have is all of grace. There are billions of people on the planet and billions of people that have existed. And for some reason, God chose us out of His mercy and grace. Not because of anything in you, but only because of Him. You meditate on that and it will humble you before Him. You will not be asking, God, why don't you give it to somebody else? You'll be asking, God, why did you give it to me? Why am I a recipient of this grace? Pride has no place in the Christian life. Church, allow the grace that God has bestowed upon you to absolutely floor you, to humble you, and out of that humility, worship the God who has saved you. He is worthy of all of your worship. Let's pray. Oh God, There are wondrous things in the gospel to which we will never get answers because your wisdom is much higher than ours. Your ways are much higher than ours. The collective wisdom of everyone in this room doesn't touch the foothills of who you are. God, thank you. Thank you for the way that you have done things. Thank you for grace. Apart from it, we know that none of us would come None of us would be here. None of us would know Christ. Christ would not be our boast. But Lord, we know that He is our only boast. We can't boast in ourselves. We can't boast in what we have done, but we can boast in Him. We thank You that You sent Him. We thank You that He died. We thank You that He paid the penalty for our sins. We thank You that He rose again and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we thank You that glory is awaiting us because of Christ. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your son. I pray these things in his name. Amen. You'll stand with